Welcome to the Oxford Psychiatry Podcast Series, brought to you today by me, Daniel Morn. Today I have Professor Keith Horton with me. He is Professor of Psychiatry at Oxford University and has been working in the field of research into suicide and self-harm for more than 35 years. Professor, I was wondering whether we could start with, um, well, really what sparked your interest in in this area? What, What led you to being a professor in this particular area? Well, it was an interesting beginning. It, it was essentially chance um, in that when I completed my training, my uh, uh, consultant boss at the time, who was a researcher, um, had funding to do research on self-harm and said, was I interested? Now, this was many, many, many years ago. And um, I've stayed in the field ever since as it has become apparent that there are so many aspects to this particular issue and particularly when one thinks about uh, treatment and prevention. Right. Well, maybe we'll go on to talk a bit about all those different aspects in a a few minutes, but uh, could you just outline, for people who might not be so familiar with what we're talking about here, can you give us the clinical context of of self-harm or suicide? What does it look like on the ground? What are we seeing clinically? Well, one important fact is that Of people who die by suicide, something like just over a quarter have been in contact with a mental health professional in the year before death. Uh, This means, of course, that psychiatry has a very important role in suicide prevention, but it also means that if you're going to think about suicide prevention more broadly, you have to think about the other 75% Mm. of people who don't come into contact with mental health services. It doesn't mean they don't have psychiatric disorders, of course. In terms of um, specific clinical conditions, suicide is, in a sense, the the worst outcome in psychiatry Mm. of a a wide range of clinical conditions. Um, And every psychiatric disorder uh, is associated with an increased risk Mm. of suicide compared with, say, the general population, uh, except perhaps dementia, although the risk may be increased in early dementia. So uh, depression um, is is the most important condition in the sense that something like 50% of people who die by uh, suicide, or at least uh, 50%, uh, have evidence of depression, whether or not they've seen a clinician. Mm. And one can find evidence talking to relatives and so on and so forth. But it is also an important uh, complication of disorders like bipolar disorder, um, schizophrenia, uh, eating disorders, um, uh, alcohol-related disorders, and particularly when uh, there is a multiplicity of disorders, so people who have depression and alcohol misuse, for example. So with all that those broad-ranging conditions that can lead to this this really um, bad outcome of suicide. What what is it that you look for in a suicide or self-harm assessment? What are, what are the things you're really focusing in on? Well, there are a number of key factors. Um, one is, of course, are people thinking about suicide? I mean, obviously, uh, are they feeling hopeless, uh, pessimistic about the future? Um, uh, one wants to know about things like their family history. A family, we know family history of suicidal behaviour can be important because there's a genetic component to suicidal behaviour. Um, have they ever uh, self-harmed in the past? 
that greatly increases the risk of future self-harm and indeed suicide. Mm. Um, but what one's trying to do, ideally, is to think about that individual in their personal circumstance, their particular social setting, um, the sorts of issues they are facing, and um, not so much in terms of generic risk assessment, which uh, mm. I think can create problems, but more about that individual and what, what one can do to reduce risk. Mm. It's all very well identifying risk, and we become risk-obsessed. Um, it's thinking about risk reduction. Right. Seeing the person in their context, Absolutely. understanding the story. Absolutely. There are lots of constraints in the healthcare system at the moment, and there's lots of change in, in A&E mm. departments, in, in psychiatric services. Are there any key challenges about this, you know, the whole context of, of, of healthcare services that relate to, to, to your area of work? Well, perhaps the main one is the, uh, the current uh, very serious problem of emergency departments. As you know, there is a huge pressure on general hospital emergency departments and um, a push to get people through them as fast as possible. Now, we know that somewhere between 200,000 and 300,000 episodes of self-harm present to general hospitals each year. Uh, now, we also know that you can't dismiss someone who's self-harmed in a few minutes. You really do have to um, spend quite a bit of time understanding their story, talking to other informants, relatives, general practitioner, and so on. Um, in order to safely assess that person's needs and risks and decide about what may be helpful for them. That is very difficult in the context of very pressurised emergency departments. An added issue is that, and you could say to some extent understandably, general medical staff and nursing staff tend to have rather negative attitudes towards self-harm patients partly because you know, they're dealing with someone who's self-inflicted, if you like, their problem, uh, or the problem that brings them to the hospital, um, and because they may not see the problems that self-harm patients have as being particularly uh, relevant to the rest of their work. So this creates, creates issues, and it also, it, means, it also means that self-harm patients often report very negative experiences of going through emergency departments and that makes their care difficult, particularly their care uh, later that might be provided by the psychiatric service. Mm -hmm. The really wide variety of patients going into emergency departments is very difficult with the constraints to provide these different sort of pathways or streams. Uh, mm. Yeah, I can really see that. You've been a a UK leading expert in this area for many, many years, and you've been involved in some really interesting projects during that time. And one uh, particularly interesting project was um, to do with the packaging of paracetamol. Um, would it be okay if you could just tell us a bit more about that? Well, we became aware during the 1980s, 1990s, that there was a major problem developing in this country with increasing numbers of people taking overdoses of paracetamol. Um, and, and this has a particular risk of um, 
um, causing uh, liver damage and, uh, uh, and, and can cause death. And so the numbers of deaths from this method were increasing. Um, uh, and we also knew that um, from a study we, we did locally that people who take paracetamol overdoses often do so very impulsively. In other words, they've only thought about it for perhaps a few minutes beforehand. They tend to take what's available in the household, although they can obviously go out and buy it. Um, and um, as, a, as a result of this, um, the, that, was, that contributed to a decision by the regulatory agency, um, the Medicines and Health Products um, uh, Regulatory Agency in the UK, uh, deciding in um, 1998 to introduce smaller packs of paracetamol, right. um, both those sold in pharmacies, uh, chemists, and sold through other outlets, supermarkets, and so on and so forth. Um, and uh, we've been monitoring the impact of that. We've done now three evaluations and have shown pretty positive benefits of that in terms of um, deaths from paracetamol overdose, um, people having to go to liver units because of the effects of paracetamol overdose. And we've shown that the size of paracetamol overdose has been uh, reduced. So that's been a pretty positive um, uh, effect of, of, of that intervention. A very interesting finding. On a different note, a few years ago you edited the book Prevention and Treatment of Suicidal Behaviour from Science to Practice. Can you tell me about your thoughts? I mean, you must have learned so much um, in, in, in so many different ways, but are there any sort of key messages that you've learned over the years in your experience of, regarding prevention of suicide in the clinical context? Well, uh, the first one, perhaps most important, is the, is the fact that suicide can be prevented. I'm not saying all suicides can be, can be prevented. I'm not necessarily saying all suicides should be prevented. Prevented, but we know that uh, many suicides can can be prevented, um, and we also know from people who survive very serious suicide attempts that they often report being extremely grateful. Um, the, the, the suicidal impulse is often very short lived, um, and uh, if people can be seen through to the end of it, um, then they're they're often grateful and glad to be alive. Uh, and that's, that's, that's really uh, an important fact. Um, another aspect is um, we know that um, you know, having the means available for suicide can be an important influence on people thinking about suicidal behaviour. And of course, if more dangerous means are available, then it can increase the risk that people will die by suicide. And that obviously has important implications when thinking about uh, uh, prevention uh, initiatives. Um, uh, I, I think another very important aspect of this uh, it relates to what I said earlier about thinking about the individual in their own social and human context and trying to understand the individual um, in terms of uh, what might propel them to, 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 to a suicidal act. Um, rather than thinking everybody's the same and you can sort of check up, you know, tick a checklist of risk factors, which I think is a very bad habit that's crept into the health, health system 
um, in our in these days of being obsessed with uh, risk um, and perhaps not thinking enough about you know what can one do to help the individual rather than just label uh, uh, label their risk. It's very interesting to hear you speak about the the patient's story because there is this drive to with the um, suicide inventories, risk inventories to go through and, t- and tick to make sure that everything is, is signed off, as it were, and that the risk has been calculated. But actually what you're saying is the patient's story, finding the individual within their context and knowing about their relationships and their, their day-to-day life is, is gives you the key to, to really what, what, the, what their actual risk is and, 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 um, and how to best manage the patient. Absolutely. Thank you. Now I'm going to ask you a question which might not have a, a, a clear answer attached to it, but I'm just interested in your opinion, uh, Professor. Do you think the, the government's suicide prevention strategy, which was published in 2012, is proving successful at the moment? Well, I think it's too early to say in terms of the, uh, the, the current um, suicide prevention strategy. because we, we had an earlier suicide prevention strategy published in 2002, um, and uh, it's interesting, if you look at suicide statistics, uh, we had a steady decline in suicide rates until 2007, when, of course, unfortunately, the recession came along, uh, worst economic recession probably ever, or mm. pretty well. And, of course, that's had inevitable negative effects uh, relating to suicide. Um, now, I, I wouldn't wa- wish to say that all the decline in, in suicide rates uh, that were seen following the first strategy were due to the strategy. Uh, I think that's unlikely, but I'd like to think that some components in it contributed to that fact. Um, the important thing about having a strategy is that it makes the people think seriously about suicide prevention. And I think that's one of the major benefits of, of, of this. Um, and, uh, you know, if I go back 20 or 30 years, people didn't talk that much about suicide prevention, certainly in terms of the population at large. Obviously, within psychiatry, we were concerned about it. But, um, uh, you know, as I, as I said earlier, you have to think more broadly in the psychiatry and psychiatric services. You're really going to talk about prevention of suicide in the nation. Uh, and in some ways, I would see that as the most useful component what the new strategy has particularly done is that it's, it's highlighted the needs of people bereaved by suicide as well as you know, what you can do about yes. suicide prevention. And I think that's a very positive benefit and we're seeing some spin-offs from that developing uh, as people are thinking more and more about helping this group of people. And we know that for every person who dies by suicide, something like six to eight people are going to be severely affected by that and uh, mm-hmm. so you're talking to about 30 to 30, 45,000 people uh, per year uh, and that I think has been a very uh, certainly a, a tangible um, benefit and I'm sure there will be more as time goes on. Do you think the uh, NICE guidance, that's the National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence, the, they produce some guidance on, in this area, do you think that's been helpful? I think it's been extremely helpful. Um, the 2004 NICE guideline, the first one uh, on self-harm, um, 
particularly highlighted the need for a development of good services for self-harm patients, which is important, mm. and secondly, the need for every self-harm patient going through a general hospital to have a psychosocial assessment of their needs, risk, and so on. Unfortunately, um, while we've got evidence that services have improved um, since that time, it doesn't appear that the proportion of patients receiving a psychosocial assessment has changed. And we know this from a 32 hospital study that we have did before the, previous, before the guidance and more recently. Um, so there's, there's an issue there. I mean, there's a clear recommendation, and yet it isn't happening. And I'm sure all the pressure that has developed on the emergency departments uh, will have been one factor in that. In the newer guideline, um, there are a number of other recommendations. One very important, which we've touched on two or three times in, the, in our discussion, is about the need to get away from, tri from relying um, on risk assessment tools. Um, and I think that's extremely important. Uh, another recommendation, and it can, comes out of a Cochrane review that we did and contributed to the NICE guidance, is that um, uh, short-term psychological therapy can be beneficial for, for not all, but for, for many people who self-harm. Uh, we're quite a long way from having that available in every service, but that um, NICE now recommends that that should be available in services. So I think in time we will start to see more benefits of that NICE guidance, but it's happening much slower than one would have liked to see happen. Well, thank you very much for uh, answering those, those questions. It's been really interesting to hear your, your view on this controversial, interesting, um, high-profile high area. Uh, before we finish, it would be really great to have um, some thoughts from you about um, any listeners, any, any school uh, students or any medical students, or any maybe foundation doctors who are contemplating a career in psychiatry, any words of advice or any thoughts you might have for them? Psychiatry is a fascinating subject, um, and it has so many facets um, uh, to it uh, that make it uh, constantly challenging, constantly interesting. Um, one of the issues we face is that uh, there are quite a lot of negative attitudes towards uh, psychiatry and not just in general but even amongst our medical colleagues and uh, doctors in training will get exposed to those, uh, particularly in the general hospital, uh, which is really un un unfortunate mm. um, because the, the, the depth of interest that psychiatry brings, being involved, you know, ranging from thinking about psychological issues, social issues, indeed political issues that are relevant to uh, our patients, along with um, all the physical aspects of, uh, uh, of psychiatric disorder, uh, is, 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 is constantly challenging, constantly fascinating. Uh, it's a speciality that I think is terrific. I have no regrets uh, about coming into this. I did medicine in order to go into psychiatry and certainly have never uh, regretted that. Well, thank you for that, um, uh, that, those positive words. 
So it's just been a real pleasure speaking to you, um, and thank you very much for your time, Professor. And thank you for tuning in to the Oxford University Psychiatry podcast series. We hope you listen to some others after this. And um, we'd just like to also say thank you to Wayne Davis, who's the part of the production team for this podcast series. Thank you. Goodbye.